All right, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're going to turn to the book of 1 John tonight. The first, the book of 1 John, 1 John and chapter 3. The book of 1 John and chapter 3. We're going to open up, obviously, as we always do with the scripture reading, that I'm going to open in prayer. And uh, before I do, I just wanted to let you know that, that we do have kind of a uh, urgent uh, prayer request in that Lily got taken to the uh, Lily Sargent got taken to the ER tonight. She's still um, sick. They're not sure what's uh, what's wrong with her. They're suspecting possibly uh, an appendicitis, uh, an appendix um, problem. So uh, we'll be in prayer for her and just pray that uh, everything goes well with that. But let's read First John chapter three first. Let's go ahead and stand in reverence to God's word. 1 John chapter 3, and beginning in verse number 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 1, one of my favorite verses in the Bible says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. That truly is something to behold. It's something to think about. It's something that ought to cause us pause, really. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come before you thanking you, Lord, that we can be reminded of this wonderful, wonderful promise. Lord, that you loved us so much that you have given us the ability to be called the sons of God. And Lord, I do pray that you would just help us to see that tonight, to realize it, to appreciate it. And Father, we thank you for everything that transpired, everything that took place so that we could be called the sons of God. And Lord, I pray now that you would just bless the service tonight. We do pray also for Lily as she's in the hospital tonight, Lord God, right now having tests done. We pray that they'd be able to find out what's wrong and be able to take care of it. And Father, we thank you that she's in your hands. We thank you, Lord God, for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. In his defense of the gospel against the apostate teachings of the Gnostics, remember those false teachers that pretty much said you can live however you want to, even after you're saved, because uh, we live in the flesh and that's what the flesh is for. And, of course, they also said that uh, uh, it, takes, uh, it takes, well, a special insight to know and understand the Scriptures. And that's why they were able to interpret it for people. And the common man cannot read the Scripture and understand it. So John has effectively shown us the fallacies in their teachings. He has pointed out their error in teaching, first of all, that Jesus is not the Christ. Remember, they didn't believe that, that God could join himself to that which is material. 
The Bible tells us that uh, God was made manifest in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he talks about that. That we ha- our hands have handled the word of life. And we know that the word not only was with God, but the word was God. And the word became flesh, that is material, and dwelt among us. And so he's pointed that out. Verse no, uh, number 22 of 1 John chapter 2. John says this, he, he makes this conclusion. He says that, who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. And so he calls them right out there. Doesn't beat around the bush, but just says, they're liars. They're lying to you. This is a false teaching. It's a false doctrine to say that to Jesus is not the Christ. Uh, on the other hand, those who teach that are anti-Christ that denieth the Father and the Son. And incidentally, if you deny one, you deny both. You can't have one without the other. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And so for those who will deny the Son of God, but uh, not deny the Father, what they don't understand, they are denying the Father. You cannot have it both ways. So John has pointed this out to us, their error. He's also revealed the fact that uh, we don't need Gnostics. We don't necessarily need a hierarchy to better understand the gospel. The gospel is simple. We try to complicate it, but the gospel is very simple. 1 John 2.27 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth. In other words, there's not going to be some private interpretation of the scripture. We're all anointed by the same Holy Spirit. There's one spirit and there's one word. There's one word of God. There's one interpretation of that word. And that is the right interpretation. And Peter would say that there's no private interpretation. And so we may need teachers to help us understand it, but we certainly don't need people who have this secret insight to tell us, well, that's what it says, but that's not really what God meant. Remember, that's, that was Satan way back in the garden. That's exactly what he did. Yea, hath God said. And uh, Eve said, yeah, God has said, we shall surely die. And Satan says, but that was not the meaning. Ye shall not surely die. So Satan was the very first, I guess, scholar, you might say, who was criticizing the word of God. So be warned. There are many organizations out there. They call themselves Christians that are far from it. And and this is proof of living in the last days. First John 2, 18, little children. It's the last time, he says. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists. Now we know that the Antichrist is yet to come. But Paul says, before, or John says, be forewarned. There are many Antichrists. And then John also has pointed out their deceit, the false teachers and their deceit in teaching that you don't have to be different to be a Christian. Remember, their thing was sensual pleasure. That's what the body is for. And so we don't have to put off these uh, uh, these sensual desires. We can 
We can fully embrace them. Of course, the word of God says that we are to flee youthful lust and that we are not to live according to the lust of the flesh. John says in 1 John 1 and in verse number 6, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. 1 John 2, verse number 29, John writes, if you know that he is, uh, if you know that he is righteous, that is God is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So there will be a change. Righteous living, though deemed legalistic by many a Christian organizations, is very much a biblical principle. Separation, separational standards, though deemed legalistic by many Christian organizations, is a biblical principle. It is a fact that once a person is saved, there is to be a radical change in that person's life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, a new creature does not act like the old creature. It's going to be different. It's going to look different. It's going to act different. It's going to uh, be different. So in our text in 1 John chapter 3, he leaves off for, uh, uh, 1 John 2.29 with doing righteousness, and he that doeth righteousness is born of him. So in our text here, John gives us four reasons why the Christian ought to change and why the Christian ought to be more Christ-like after his salvation experience and strive to be more Christ-like. So four things that he gives us here. The first thing he gives us is this consideration here. Behold. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. So the first consideration here, how considerate God is to us in the manner of love. You know, love has never been displayed in the manner that it was for us. It's never been displayed the way that God displayed love. Now, some people have displayed love, and, and some people have, have done a, a, a great job of it, but no one has done it like God has done it. You know, it's hard to display love for someone who continues to wrong you over and over and over again. Man, that just tries you. It tries your patience. It, it tries your very being. Yet that's what man has done to the God of love. Now, under, I understand that God's ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But, you know, sometimes I think every single one of us will do this. We'll try to put ourselves in God's place and imagine how we might have handled things. And, you know, after the fall of man, God promised man a redeemer. That Redeemer would come some 4,000 years later, but you know what? It didn't come because after 4,000 years, man finally deserved it. And I, I think to myself, man, if, I, if that would have been me up there for 4,000 years watching mankind and, and, uh, and every time you try to do something for man, 
Man rejects it, man rejects you, and, and then, of course, uh, uh, God instituted Israel and gave Israel all those blessings and then gave Israel a choice. I offer you the choice of curses. I offer you the choice of blessings. And all you got to do to gain the blessings is just be obedient. Do what is best for you. Be obedient to God. And, and even Israel rejected rejected God over and over and over again after 4,000 years had it been me I would have a very hard time demonstrating love sometimes uh, you know people will try you sometimes uh, things will try you sometimes your pets will try you you know sometimes it's hard to display that love that's why sometimes we just lose our temper but here is, uh, is God looking down at man. Romans chapter 3, verse number 10. This describes mankind. Romans chapter 3, verse number 10. As it is written, there's none righteous. So after 4,000 years of, observe, of observing man, this is the conclusion. And by the way, we're 2,000 years later. And we could, God could write the same thing. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. You know, most of us came to God because God sought us through someone else. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No. Not one. That's the, that's the observation. That's God's analysis of man. Okay, God, so what are you going to do with this man that there's not, a, there's not a single good one? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What are you going to do for mankind? Well, I'm going to send my son to die for mankind. My, no one else would do this. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. In spite of the fact that, that we display contempt, in spite of the fact that there's none righteousness, God bestowed his love upon us anyway. I just read to you from Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 5, just a couple of chapters later. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. Romans 5, verse number 8 says, But after Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he goes on, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now think about that. We've just read God's analysis of man. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. But... God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is what John's talking about. 
behold, think about this. Think about the manner of love that God has bestowed upon us. And when you accept that salvation, you accept that love, shouldn't that change you? Getting back to Romans chapter 5. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And behold what manner of love the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Atonement means restoration to favor, that we have been restored. You know, when, when God created man, man had favorable status and then man sinned and then man didn't seek God and then as man multiplied there was none good no not one and so man was condemned matter of fact I should say man is condemned until man accepts Jesus Christ as personal savior and because of the death of the Son, we can, be we can be reconciled. We have now received the atonement. We have been given favorable status. Not because we deserve it, but because of the manner of love that God's bestowed upon us. What more can be said about God who gave the life of his son so that we might be saved. Romans chapter 5 right there says it all. And if we cannot give up certain things in our lives to help further the cause of Christ, we give up our Sundays and consider that a huge, huge sacrifice. Those of us that are here tonight, we give up our Wednesdays. And boy, after a hard day at work, we, we consider that a, a huge sacrifice. And, and others will even give up more. And we consider it a huge sacrifice. But if we cannot give up certain things in our lives to help further the cause of Christ, we, must un we misunderstand the manner of love bestowed on us. It is the ultimate in selfishness. When we will take that love, we'll take that salvation and then continue to say, this life is mine. Just like the individual who refuses to change after he or she is married, not realizing that there are things you must give up if you're going to make the relationship work. That's selfishness. And, of course, we know that. We'd all acknowledge that. But our God has bestowed a manner of love that no one else ever has. Paul understood this love, and that's why he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and in verse number 13, he says, If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh, while the world standeth, lest I make my brother 
to offend. In other words, Paul said, you know, whatever it is that, that causes offense to a brother, because of the manner of love that God has, has bestowed upon us, and all that he sacrificed, if me giving up meat will help someone get saved or help a brother draw closer to Christ, I'll give up meat. And yet, some people, you will ask them to do certain things for the cause of Christ, and they'll throw an absolute fit. Well, I shouldn't have to do that. Well, show me in the Bible where it says that I should have to give that up or where I should have to do this or I should have to do that. No, everything we do, we do out of love. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have to give up meat. But Paul said, hey, if it's a stumbling block, I'll give it up. You know, it was Paul that would write that um, uh we're not to use liberty for an occasion of the flesh. But instead, we are to use it to serve one another. And this is what he's talking about here. Sometimes it means I have to give some things up for the benefit of others so that others can come to know Christ. Because, listen, that it's an others-oriented lifestyle and Jesus set the example he didn't come down here uh, for his benefit he came down here for our benefit he didn't die for his benefit he died for our benefit he didn't go through all of that for his benefit it was all for us and so what more can be said about a God whose will it is that his enemies might be saved as we read in Romans, the book of Romans, we, we were enemies. And yet now he allows us to become his sons. Second Peter, we write that, or we read that God's not willing that any should perish. Second Peter 3, 9, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's will for his enemies. Behold what manner of love. Not only should we behold or consider the, the manner of love, what about the source of this love? We should consider that the love came from the creator who had the power to destroy us, but instead used his might to preserve us. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. My, once again... If it were me standing up there or if it were any of us and we looked down and said, man, there's not one good deed. There's not one good person. There's not one that seeketh after God. There's not one that gives God credit. We'd use our power to destroy. But God uses his power and his might to preserve. When man sinned in the garden and chose wrong over God, condemning his soul, God immediately promised a redeemer. That was his immediate reaction. Of course, we know that they were kicked out of the garden. Those were the consequences. And then death became a part of life, unfortunately. 
They died immediately spiritually. They began to die physically. But God promised man a redeemer in Genesis 3.15. He said, I'll put enmity between thee, that is Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we know that was the promise of the Messiah, the one that would be born of a woman and not the seed of man. So the consideration ought to cause a change in our lives. As John is begging these Christians, don't listen to these Gnostics and, and live a life of sensuality. But instead, as he said in verse 29 of 1 John Chapter 2, if you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Well, why should I, why should I be so willing to change? Well, it, uh, it's not a matter of being willing to change. Uh, this change ought to come, uh, this ought to be a desire. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. My, the consideration. But then he also gives us another reason for the change. And I call this the conversion. The conversion that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Verse 2, beloved, now are we the sons of God. So John again says there ought to be a change uh, just... out of consideration when you consider the manner of love the source of love how we don't deserve that love but there also ought to be a conversion a conversion now are we the sons of God you know God's love bestowed upon us allots us the greatest of all honors becoming the sons of God we go from being a convert of Satan, to becoming a son of God. John chapter 1, verse number 12. We read, uh, and we've been reading this a lot uh, during this, this last month because of the Christmas story. But John chapter 1, verse number 12. But as many as received him, talking about the light of the world, talking about Jesus, the word, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now listen to this. Sometimes we'll read that and forget about this next part. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, it was the will of God. Not the will of man. Listen, you and I, we're not, we're not born again because that's our will. We're born again because that's what God desires. That's what he wants. And, and the spirit calls us and people witness to us. And, and, and then as we are guided into truth, we accept the gospel. We accept Christ. And, and that's God's will for us. That's an amazing thing. That after the analysis, there's not one that doeth good. And God says, well, I don't want to destroy them. But that's what they deserve, Lord. That's what they deserve. But I'm not willing that any should perish. And so those that are born again are born 
of the will of God. That's what he wants. That's an amazing thing. And then we become the sons of God out of that, uh, out of that uh, conversion, if you will. And listen, with royalty, when you're, when you're a child of God, you're a child of the king. And with royalty always comes responsibility. There is difference between royalty and what you might call commoners. Um, we are, as the word of God describes us, a royal priesthood. That, that's a huge responsibility to be a child of God and to be part of the priesthood. Becoming a son of God makes us opposite of what, what we once were. In other words, when, when God says that as many as believed in him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, what he's saying is that I'm giving you the ability to be the opposite of what you are. Now, opposite is different. I mean, when you see something that's op the opposite of something else, I mean, it is different. Day is the opposite of night, is it not? And, you know, they don't just uh, flow one into the other and you don't notice it. You notice there's a difference between the night and the day. Seasons, when you live in, a, when you live in an area where you have definite seasons, you know this. Winter is the opposite of summer. They are as different as they can possibly be. And when God says that... Um, he gives us the power to become the sons of God. That means he gives us the ability, the power to be opposite of what we were. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and while you're tuning over there to Ephesians chapter 2, let me read John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. That's total. That's opposite. Life and, and wrath. But look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 3. And let me go ahead and just turn over there because um, I think we're going to want to go even a little bit further than that. Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse number 3. Where the word of God says, Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past. Now he's talking about our past life before we're saved. We all had our conversation uh, in the world, the opposite of what we ought to be once we're saved. So he says, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past. And then he describes that conversation or that lifestyle, the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath even as others. And so exactly what the Gnostics say you can be, the Word of God says you can't be. Not if you're truly saved. Because you are now the opposite. He goes on in verse number 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 and says, But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, that was the description in verse number three. Even when we were dead in sins, 
uh, hath quickened us together with Christ. And there's two opposites right there. To be quickened means to be made alive. So dead and alive. Uh, total opposites. And, you know, we ought to be able to tell the difference between someone who's dead and someone who's alive. There, there, there ought to be a difference. And the emphasis, of course, is there ought to be a definite difference between someone who's saved and someone who does not know Christ as their personal Savior. Someone who strives to live for God and someone who, as uh, Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 3, strives to live for the flesh. They ought to be polar opposites. I mean, like summer and winter, like the living and the dead. And so this whole idea that Christians can live in this world incognito, and you ought to be able to walk into a church and, and walk into a rock concert and not be able to tell the difference. That's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. One ought to be light. And I, I mean that spiritually, but I also, I also think it ought to be physically. There are, one ought to be light and, and one's going to be darkness. One, one ought to be spiritual and, and one obviously is going to be fleshly and, and earthly. We are to be the opposite now of what we once were. My, once the children of wrath and now the children of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 4, we already read. Um, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Look at verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Once driven by our own desires now driven by his will once driven by our will and now driven by his desires hebrews 13 verse 20 says now the god of peace that brought again from the dead our lord jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you perfect in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. My, the consideration ought to cause a change. Consider what manner of love, the source of that love, uh, the conversion from a child of the world to a child of God. The conversion ought to cause a change. But then John also talks about something else. That will be the result of this change. First John chapter three. Let's go back to our main text. First John chapter three. First John chapter three. First, we have the consideration. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us. We then have the conversion that we should be called the sons of God. Now we've got the consequences. 
Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now, this whole desire to make the church and Christianity um, relevant to the world, it's not possible. This whole idea that we can make the make the church um, desirable to the world. It's not possible. This whole idea that we can make the church familiar to the world. Listen, we're going to go out of our way to make people feel comfortable. But quite honestly, until someone comes to know Christ as personal Savior, they'll not feel at home under the preaching of the word. They'll feel convicted. And the only way to remedy that is not by the church lowering its standards and playing the music that the world desires and, and changing the platform into a stage and, and, and putting on a show. No, the only way to remedy that is for them to come to know Christ as personal Savior, which is why there are there's just there's not the changes that there ought to be in churches and Christianity anymore because the church has lowered itself to make itself desirable to the world. And yet the Bible says that's an impossibility. You can't do it. We've even tried to dumb down the Bible. Well, you know, people look at the Bible for the first time. It, in, it intimidates them. Well, I get that. I understand that. But, you know, the Bible says that the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit. They're spiritually discerned. The remedy is leading people to Christ. The remedy is them coming to know Christ as personal savior. And that's what we that's what we need to be always praying for. Lord Jesus we want people to be saved. And we know that it's not going to be because of our talents. All we can do is try to is live the life God wants us to live and not be the not be the hypocrite that drives people away. And when we do our part, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit does his part. Because that's how people are saved, by the conviction, the calling, and the discerning of the Holy Spirit. We ought not try to do the job of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And so we need to leave it up to the Holy Spirit. There are going to be consequences of coming to know Christ as personal Savior and in those consequences are those changes. One is non-acceptance of the world. The world knoweth us not. Jesus warned the apostles of this. Marvel not if the world hate you. Remember, they hated me first. And the servant is not greater than his master. And so if they hated Jesus, 
do we really think that we can have the personality? Well, you know, Jesus just didn't handle things right. And, you know, he, he, he just wasn't, um, uh, he, he just didn't have a way with people. But, you know, 2,000 years later, we know better, don't we? <laughs> Non-acceptance from the world. Listen, the world, even world religions that call themselves Christians will not tolerate our biblical positions but it will accuse us of being legalistic. Listen, don't let non-acceptance from the world dishearten you and cause you to compromise. John 15, 18, I just, uh, I just read this one to you. If the world hate you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Look at verse 13 of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. John repeats it. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Now, we don't go out of our way to be hated. The word of God says that, uh, uh, boy, as much as is possible within you, and I'm paraphrasing, li live at peace with everyone you can live at peace with. That, that's what we strive for in Matthew chapter 10. And in verse number 28, Matthew chapter 10, verse number 28. All right, Matthew 10, 28. The word of God says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So that has to be our priority. Um, Regard not the world. Don't obviously God doesn't say be a jerk on purpose and and make the world hate you. Uh, that's not what we strive for. But what we do strive for is to be pleasing to him first and foremost. One of the greatest dangers for the church is to strive to seek worldly acceptance. Um, trying to gain worldly acceptance leads to imitation of the world. Remember, the church is supposed to be a lifeboat in the sea of life. And a lifeboat is only effective when the sea's not getting in to the boat. Um, we're definitely in the sea. We're definitely in the world. But God does not want the world to get inside of us or to get inside of the church. Otherwise, what is the point? John 1, 5, the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. But not only are we looking at uh, non-acceptance from the world, sometimes that's going to lead to persecution from the world. We should be more concerned about pleasing our Heavenly Father. Um, how does the world know that we're not of the world? Because we're different. Because there is a change. Light shines in darkness. And darkness comprehends it not. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall at one time or another suffer persecution. So there ought to be that consideration. That ought to cause a change. Behold what manner 
of love. There ought to be a conversion. We have become the sons of God. We understand there, there will be consequences. Hey, if there were no change, there wouldn't be consequences. And then fourthly, I want you to notice 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2. I want you to notice this commitment. 1 John 3, verse number 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he or even as God is pure. So there's God's commitment to us first and foremost. We are the sons of God. A father has a commitment to his children. A father is committed to protect his children. A father is committed to preserve his children. And so when God calls us sons, by doing that, he's making a commitment. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, you are going to be to me as sons and daughters, and I'm going to be to you as a father. And so his present commitment to us is to take the role of father, for now are we the sons of God. Now, God's committed to us, and this is the commitment, not only here and in this present, but for eternal security. Listen, the word of God does not say that once we are in heaven, we will be his sons, but now are we his sons. And that's a great promise, because one thing you cannot lose is sonship. You know, no matter what, your son will always be your son. Uh, no matter where he goes, your son will always be your son. Uh, the, that, that bond of blood is always going to be there. Uh, you gave that uh, child life. You gave that child um, uh, uh, your seed. Uh, you gave that child characteristics. Your son will always be your son, you cannot lose sonship. We can lose fellowship, but you cannot lose sonship. This is one of the great truths of God's word missed by those who teach you can lose your salvation. You can lose fellowship. Um, and we know that just from, we know that from our earthly relationships. But you cannot lose sonship. And this is not to say that nothing bad will ever happen to us. That's not the commitment that God is making. He, he, he's committed to protect us, to preserve us. Sometimes we learn our greatest lessons when dad lets us learn by allowing us to suffer a little. Um, I... Uh, you know, obviously, I didn't have the perfect parents, but I think I had, I, uh, to me personally, I think I had great parents. And, and one of the things that I think my dad was very good at was letting us get into uh, scuffles, trouble, and not being a helicopter parent. Uh, letting us take care, well, matter of fact, my dad let me got, get beat up a time or two. Um, Say, wow, really? Yeah, and I'll tell you what it taught me to do. Not fight that kid again. <laughs> Listen, 
Dad would let us wobble a bit on our bikes, maybe even fall before he reaches out a hand. You know, when, when, when teaching a child to swim, dad needs to let his child swallow a little bit of water and, and understand the dangers as well as how fun swimming can be. You know, as children, we are also in, 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 need, of, uh, in need of discipline, but need, uh, dads have that commitment. Sometimes dad causes the pain. And, of course, the Bible says that God certainly will, that he will chastise us, that he will spank us, that he treats us as a father does his children. So not only has God made a commitment here and now in protecting, in preserving, but also in the future commitment to us, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. His future commitment to us from our inadequate, sinful condition, we shall be like him. What a thought. People have often asked me, Pastor, what does that mean? I don't know. I really don't. I don't know exactly what it means, but I know this better than we are now. What he uh, what we shall be. Is exalted, glorified Romans eight, verse number 18, Paul says this, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Again, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I know it's better than what we have now. What we shall be is relieved. Romans 7, 24, Paul laments, oh, wretched man that I am. And this after talking about how he struggles with the flesh and how oftentimes the flesh wins and, 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 and he falls and, and oh, it's... I, I failed my God and a wretched man that I am. He goes, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Oh, it's going to be a relief. Because Revelation 21 verse number four says that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, Imagine that. I'm adding to the list now. No guilt, no failure. It's all going to be in the past. What a relief. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. God is committed to our future. Now we ought to be committed to him. Verse 3. Every man that hath this hope, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. In other words, every day we strive to change, to be more like him because he's given us this great hope. And I guess that comes back to the consideration. Behold, what manner of love 
Our commitment to him is to purify ourselves that we may be used and be pleasing to him. Because if we don't change, God can't use us. If we continue in that carnal, fleshly lifestyle that we came from, God can't use us. A clean vessel not only claims to be clean, but also looks clean. Wouldn't it be something if you went to someone's house for dinner and they handed you dirty dishes? And then you said, and, and you hesitated. And they're like, oh, they only look dirty. They're not really dirty. Oh, and they only smell dirty. Don't be so judgmental. And yet that's exactly what, that's how people treat Christianity. Oh, they only look worldly, but they're not really worldly. Don't be so judgmental. They only dress in a worldly manner and they only sound worldly. And yeah, they, they talk worldly, but why are you so judgmental? Um, because something that's clean ought to look clean, shouldn't it? Something that uh, is light. Or if someone handed you a flashlight and you turned it on and it wouldn't turn on. And they said, oh, it only looks like it doesn't turn on. There's really light coming out of that flashlight. No, light is obvious. And if we are the light of the world, that ought to be obvious. If it doesn't look clean, it probably isn't clean. Christ can't use us if there's even a hint of uncleanness. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says that we are to abstain from even the appearance of evil. So if you have a dish that after it's clean still looks dirty, you probably don't want to give it to a guest. Because even the appearance of filthiness might keep someone from wanting to come and eat off of your dishes. And that's what God wants us to be. He says, even if it appears to be evil, stay away from it. Because your reputation is God's reputation. Because your testimony is God's testimony. And so, not only has God made a commitment to us, but we are to make that commitment to him. If we have this hope, purify yourself even as he is pure. So putting on good works while purging ourselves of the world is the least we can do for the God who has sacrificed so much. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. With every head bowed and with every eye closed,